and our scripture reading for today. The lectionary really gave me a good one today. Amos 5, 18 through 24. What sorrow awaits you, you who say, if only the day of the Lord were here. You have no idea what you are wishing for. That day will bring darkness, not light. In that day, you will be like a man who runs from a lion only to meet a bear. Escaping from the bear, he leans his hand against a wall in his house and he's bitten by a snake. Yes, the day of the Lord will be darkness, dark and hopeless, without a ray of joy or hope. I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice and an endless river of righteous living. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A heavy scripture reading. And we probably should get used to it because in coming weeks, um, especially as we head the last few weeks leading into Advent, the the lectionary does get pretty heavy. Um, And I think that's probably good for us to sit with these texts. You know, we we live, it it doesn't take a long look around our world to notice that we live in turbulent times. In many ways, this seems to be a rather heavy season. I I also wonder, though, if that's just the nature of life in our world. If all seasons are heavy and turbulent, if we look close enough for long enough. In fact, I also understand that by many measures historically, in some ways, this is the safest time to be alive. But that doesn't negate the fact that things are rather chaotic. You know, we see chaos globally with wars being waged around the world, even now. Innocent victims suffering daily under threats of grotesque violence. Even though we are insulated from that in many ways by our geographical distance, still it is heavy. Or maybe for you, that heaviness is felt a little bit closer to home. And maybe you feel that uh, notably every time around this time of year as we head into the holidays. While holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas are often joyous celebratory times. For some, even some in this room I'm sure, empty chairs at tables can also be painful reminders of lost loved ones. Or broken, strained relationships. Perhaps you even find yourself now already preparing mentally and emotionally for the heaviness you will encounter. Maybe for the many layers of tension you will have to navigate in coming weeks. Henry Nouwen once said, I am beginning to see that much of praying is grieving. I think there's some truth to that. And Even more broadly, I I wonder if that thought um, is a reminder for us that grief and heaviness are not relegated to the unspiritual parts of life. But I do think it's important for us to remember as we think about the heaviness of this time or the heaviness of our situations to remember that grief doesn't have to lead us to a place of despair. 
Which prompts the question that I want to consider today. As people of faith, how do we respond to tragedy like death? Our answer to that question may also inform how we respond more broadly to various tragedies and difficulties, but how might we as people of faith walk a grief journey without, A, denying that reality, but B, also not being overcome by despair? So today we turn our attention to our New Testament text for this week from 1 Thessalonians. We're moving ahead to chapter 4. Last week we were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, jumping ahead a couple of chapters. Remember, Paul is writing to Christians in the city of Thessalonica, this church he had planted, and he's writing to encourage them, also to provide some challenge, but to really nurture their nascent Christian Faith. I, I want to read this section in its entirety, and then we'll focus in more detail on a couple of sections. But we'll pick it up in chapter 4, verse 13, where we read this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now we could spend hours looking at the latter half of that section. If you don't know me, rest assured we're not going to do that. But we could. In fact, there are stacks of books that explore exactly what the latter half of this section might mean. And, and we're not going to spend our time today obsessing over end times realities. Although, again, as we make this journey the last few weeks before we get to Advent, the lectionary is going to be bringing up a lot of apocalyptic imagery. So we're going to be thinking about these things at least a little bit over the, the next few weeks. And today we will deal indirectly with some of the issues surrounding the coming of the Lord. But while this text in particular has often been sort of the go-to passage to uh, develop something like a rapture theology, I'm not all that interested in that today. Because first of all, I don't think that's Paul's point in this text. I think the main concern we find at the beginning there, and that is simply this, that Jesus is coming back. And the dead in Christ will be raised to life everlasting and will be with him forever. So be comforted. Don't grieve like those who grieve without hope. So Paul begins and concludes this section with words of comfort and encouragement, which I think indicates that this may be his goal in this teaching, comfort 
and encouragement. And then he instructs his audience to do the same thing. Encourage one another with these same truths. And the comfort he is offering the people through this text comes from being grounded in some of the basic truths of the faith we are a part of. He says, I want you to be informed about this central claim of the Christian faith. If we want to find comfort in devastation, if we want to find hope in grief, I think this is where we go. We remember what the resurrection of Jesus teaches us. He says, I want you to be informed about those who fall asleep. Maybe as we were reading that scripture, you were beginning to doze off and it caused you to wake up. If so, welcome. We're glad you're with us. Who, who is he referring to here? It's obviously not a reference to folks who take naps at inopportune times. You know, I've, I've done a, my fair share of public speaking, both in contexts like this one, but also in the classroom. And I have had students as recently as this semester fall asleep right before my eyes while I am, which is a dagger to your confidence in your ability to hold a class's attention. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about folks who are caught napping when they should be awake. So who are they? He says, don't be, un don't be uninformed about those who are asleep. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This idea of sleep is rising to the top time and time again in this text. This was a euphemism for death in the first century. You know, we have similar euphemisms for death. We might say somebody passed away in reference to death, and that's sort of what we see going on. We see something like this in the Lazarus story. From John chapter 11, after Jesus delays his return to see his friend who is sick, and he explains to his followers, our friend has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And they protest, well, if he's asleep, no big deal. He's going to wake up, he'll recover. But of course, Jesus was pointing to his death. So sleep is a euphemism in the first century for death. Remember, Paul is writing here, to the first generation of Christians. They're beginning to understand that their newfound faith impacts every aspect of life, including how they understand death. Death is no longer the final step at which point we cease to exist. So for Paul, those who are asleep, who he's referring to, these are believers who have died. And Christians in the first century uh, seem comfortable using that euphemism referring to death as sleep, not necessarily because they believe in some notion of a soul sleep, that period of unconsciousness between death and the second coming. That, that's an issue that can be debated, but they seem comfortable with the euphemism of sleep for death, perhaps because of an understanding that death is not final. They believe in resurrection. So this text is about individuals in the Christian community in the first century who had died. Again, what we started with this morning, heavy realities. We are talking today in particular about death. And what is one of the most basic principles of death? Death naturally leads to grief. 
Whether we are people of faith or not, whether we're people of faith in general or people of Christian faith in particular or people of no faith at all, death leads to grief. And not always momentary, fleeting grief. It doesn't follow a timeline. Yes, while it changes and may improve over the years, it likely won't ever disappear completely. The reality is that death, tragedy, eventually affects us all. So the question I think I want to encourage us to consider is how do we navigate that heavy reality as people of faith? I think there are a couple of ways that it is often dealt with or approached, ways that are not helpful. The first one is outright avoidance. We may avoid the heaviness of a tragedy like death because we simply don't want to feel it. Pain is not enjoyable, obviously, and our initial impulse might be to avoid anything that's difficult or unpleasant. So I'm going to do anything and everything in my power to escape the pain of this moment. Sometimes we may avoid the heaviness of grief because we think, well, that is the spiritual thing to do. If I slap a smile on my face and deny the sorrow I'm feeling, that surely is going to show others that I have a really strong faith. We must remember, though, that Christian hope is not denial. Perhaps we also avoid grief because on some level our hearts have been hardened. I'm, I'm stronger than this. I'm, I'm above that. I'm not a mentally weak person, so I'm going to pull myself together and just get over this, or at least put up a good front. I'm going to avoid the appearance that I have any vulnerability. I, I don't want to show my weakness or my lack or my need, because if I show that, I fear I may lose respect or maybe I uh, might relinquish some of the, the control or at least the perceived control that I'm trying to maintain over this situation. I wonder at times if functionally, as we approach this text from 1 Thessalonians 4, I wonder if we read Paul's instruction in verse 13 and sort of stop mid-sentence. We, we read something like, that you may not grieve. Or do not grieve. And then we frantically begin figuring out how in the world am I going to avoid grief in the face of this legitimate heartbreak and tragedy. We stop mid-sentence without continuing to read the subsequent clause. Do not grieve. Or that you may not grieve like the rest of humanity. Like those who have no hope in grief. That is a drastically different reading. So maybe at times we avoid feeling and entering grief because of misguided theological readings. If I'm a person of faith, I shouldn't grieve. I'm supposed to be joyful. That's what Paul says in Philippians. Rejoice and continue to rejoice. Do it always. If I trust God and if I am going to be a joy-filled person, I can't be sad or grieved. I think Paul leads us into, uh, instead, into a rather difficult place of tension. No, he acknowledges that grief is a normal part of the human experience, but encourages us that we, we want to do that. We want to walk that journey in a way that is thoroughly Christian. 
If we insist on running from our sadness or running from our grief, I'm afraid eventually we will do unspeakable damage not only to ourselves, but also to others. Because until we can allow our hearts to be broken and to feel that brokenness, to own it in a way and, and walk that journey towards healing, until we allow that process to move forward, we will continue to project our brokenness onto others. So I don't think that what Paul is suggesting here should be interpreted at all as an encouragement to avoid or deny grief, to just wipe your tears and move on because it's not that big of a deal. I think that would neglect a very real and even important part of what it means to be a human being. In fact, the only way that I can ensure that I never suffer a broken heart or never deal with grief is to avoid love and genuine relationships altogether. And we all understand that is no way to live. Even if in certain circumstances it might make life easier. Because let's face it, relationships are not, always, are not only challenging in the present moment, but they also always represent future pain because relationships always end. I, I don't mean to be a downer here, but it's just a fact of life. Maybe they end due to a falling out or natural drift over time, but ultimately they end due to death. But as that old cliche goes, I think it's true. It is better to have lo loved and lost than to have never loved at all. Or as the incredibly heart-wrenching love song by Jason Isbell de declares, it's likely one of us will have to spend some days alone. Maybe we'll get 40 years together, but one day I'll be gone, or one day you'll be gone. If you love, you will experience loss. And it is not more spiritual to deny that reality or to conceal that pain. The other danger, though, is to move into despair, where we have no hope. And I think Paul does encourage us, grief is going to be a part of your human experience, but enter that in a way that is Christian. Christian grief is not denial. It's also not despair. Rather, grief for Christians acknowledges pain, enters it, feels it, and then directs a cry to God. And not a single cry directed to God. You know, we've probably all experienced situations, maybe a breakup in junior high or high school, where, where all you need is a good cry, and then you can sort of move beyond it. That's not what we're talking about. It is not a fleeting momentary acknowledgement of pain just for a split second and then moving on into joy because it's not that big of a deal. Christians will, and I think should, grieve. It is a part of life. And it can be a holy and spiritual process as we invite God into those deepest points of pain 
that we experience. We are not insulated from that reality. And we don't want to spend our time and energy looking for ways to avoid it. We enter it. We walk that journey. We weep and mourn and grieve. And we do all of those things, not just for us when we feel that pain, but we do it with others as well. When others grieve, we want to be willing to enter into the pain of that loss, even if we only feel it tangentially. Because of our attachment to the body, we can't help but feel the pain others are enduring. So I think one of the things, at least as I read him, one of the things that Paul acknowledges here is the difficulty of grief, but the fact that it is unavoidable. It is just assumed that Christians will not be insulated from grief, and that grief is always going to be complex, at least for those who are willing to enter it and go on that healing journey. And while there are various tasks involved in grieving well, understanding those tasks and being intentional about working toward that end doesn't necessarily simplify the process. The journey of grief is not a linear progression through stages. It's a jumbled roller coaster of a mess. But I think we discover as we walk through that, that the effort is worth it. Near the end of his novel, A Farewell to Arms, which I recognize this the second week in a row that I've referenced to this, so it gives you a little insight into my summer reading program. Anyway, Ernest Hemingway wrote this at the end of that novel. He said, the world breaks everyone, and afterward many are strong at the broken places. The world breaks everyone, but there's a strength that often emerges from those broken places. I wonder, though, if that sort of strength only follows a deep wrestling through the bitter reality of grief. So Paul insists, I want you to consider the fact that as a follower of Jesus, you will grieve. There's an acknowledgement of that, but you don't have to grieve like the rest of humanity. The, the paradox of Christian grief is that there is hope in the midst of the heaviness. And not just hope that you will eventually get over the pain. That, that's not what makes Christian grief unique. What makes it unique is that we believe that the death, the separation, is not permanent. And, and I want to emphasize that that does not make the pain go away. It doesn't always make grief easier in the moment, but the pain and the sorrow carry with them, or can carry with them, a new inexplicable sweetness and hope because of the belief in the resurrection of the dead. It's a, I, I get it, it's a wild claim, to be sure. But because of our belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our trust in his promises, we believe that we will also taste his resurrection life. And we trust that those who have died in Christ are now with the Lord, as Paul says here, and will experience glorious, everlasting renewed life, and that on that final day we will be caught up together with all of those in Christ and will be with the Lord forever. This is the hope of glory. 
As we affirm in the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Be comforted today in the midst of grief and pain. There is hope. There is hope. Wendell Berry wrote that the shoddy work of despair and the pointless work of pride equally betray creation. They're wastes of life, he says. He went on, good work finds the way between pride and despair. Well, he was talking about something else, but I wonder if something similar could be said of Christian hope. It is sort of this middle way between pride and despair. It certainly is not a simple optimism that always sees the glasses half full. It is also not sunken despair where we resign ourselves to that declaration from Ecclesiastes that all is meaningless. Christian hope finds a way, one that is often hard fought to be sure, but it finds a way between pride and despair. We grieve, but we do so with an inexplicable hope. So this is how, how I want to conclude our time today as we gather around the table of our Lord and celebrate the new life that we have in him, the resurrected life that we await. I want to encourage you in a couple of ways, especially as we head into a holiday season, acknowledging that this is a heavy time for many people. Number one is to hold space for those who are grieving during this season. That might require giving up some of our insistence on having the sort of picture-perfect Hallmark movie gathering. But life is a bit more complex than Hallmark love stories suggest. So hold space for those who are grieving. And maybe go a step further than that. Maybe check up on those who might be entering a holiday season without a loved one for the first time or maybe the fifth time, or maybe the 15th time. Check up on them. At the end of this text, Paul says, he not only presents his argument, but then he encourages the body, encourage one another with this same reality. We're not trying to mask over grief and pain, but we do want to offer some comfort and sit with those who are wrestling with that pain. And then finally... If you find yourself navigating that sort of grief, I would just encourage you again to cling to your hope in Jesus Christ. Find that sweet spot between pride and despair. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we believe that we have hope that we will be together with the Lord forever. Thanks be to God. Would you stand with me as we prepare to gather around the table of our Lord to celebrate new life in Jesus Christ. A table that is open and welcoming for the complexity of our lives and our situations. Wherever you find yourself today, you are welcome. And I, I truly believe that in the event that we celebrate at this table, there is healing and hope available for the uniqueness of your situation. I encourage you to receive that, to welcome Jesus into your deepest places of pain, to receive his comfort. 
I want to say a prayer for us, and then I'm going to invite us to gather around the table. We'll make two lines down these center aisles. When you get to the front, somebody is going to be up here and will speak over you, uh, over you the words, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and receive these gifts of God for the people of God. You can receive them on your own and return to your seat. Again, there will be somebody at the back available for prayer. If you have a special need, please, please stop by there. Let me say a prayer by way of invitation, and then we'll gather around our Lord's table. Lord Jesus, I just want to express gratitude first in this moment that we have a gift in our scriptures that acknowledges and gives space for the complexity of our lives. We are grateful for that gift. And we hear these words from the Apostle Paul directed to our brothers and sisters who lived long before we walked this earth. And we ask that you might use those words to bring comfort into our wounded places. We open ourselves to the work of your spirit in this moment. Bring healing, we pray. Bring comfort and still hope in our hearts and minds. Now we pray, O oh merciful Father, you have taught us in your holy word that you do not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. Look with pity on the sorrows of your servants. Remember us, O Lord, in mercy. Nourish our souls with patience. Comfort us with a sense of your goodness. Lift up your countenance upon us and give us peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord as we celebrate together?